Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backyard Geology Canada Edition. I am your host, Serena, back for another bonus episode at the Diavik Diamond Mine in the Northwest Territories. If you haven't already, listen to episode 5 in this season of Backyard Geology for an introduction to Canadian Kimberlite Diamonds and the Diavik Diamond Mine. Canada hosts a group of extra-special igneous intrusions up north. Kimberlite pipes, a type of intrusion originating from deep within the mantle, host diamonds. These diamonds are mined in the Northwest Territories at the Diavik Diamond Mine, one of the most productive diamond mines in the world. Today, I am joined by Dr. Yanina Chas, who studied for her PhD at the University of Alberta and who is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Hello, Yanina, and welcome to Backyard Geology. Hi. Everybody likes diamonds, and I think that's kind of a given. But personally, I think geologists like diamonds just a little bit more because of the interesting and intense conditions that lead to their formation and their ascent to the surface. I'm excited to have you here today to learn more about kimberlite diamonds and kimberlites that we have right here in Canada. Would you please introduce yourself to listeners? Hi, um, I'm Yanina. As uh, Serena said, I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And my main research focuses on diamond formation, the formation of cratons, which are the oldest parts of our continents. So they form the cores of our continents and the evolution of those cratons. I'm particularly interested in the mantle, so the earth mantle below those cratons, and their geochemistry. So as a geologist, why are you and other geologists interested in kimberlites and in diamond research? Diamonds and kimberlites, particularly diamonds, though, are very interesting because they let us study a part of the earth, the earth mantle, that is otherwise inaccessible to us physically. We can look at it with geophysics studies, but actually getting physical samples from this part of the earth is only possible through kimberlite volcanoes and the diamonds they bring to the surface. This essentially allows us to have a little window into the earth's mantle. And what types of things are you looking for in diamonds that are special to the mantle? I study diamonds as well as the rocks that host the diamonds. So those are typically rocks called peridotites that are rich in a mineral called olivine or eclogites that are metamorphosed, subducted um, oceanic crust. And those rocks can tell us something about the timing of the formation of these cratons. So those thick lithosphere fragments that form the cores of our continents. They can tell us something about the environment that the diamonds formed in. They can tell us about processes that occurred at different times throughout Earth's history and uh, fluids that penetrated through the Earth's mantle. And the fluids or melts that percolate through the Earth's mantle, one of the things that they leave behind is diamonds. And then the diamonds specifically often, or sometimes, rather sometimes, contain small inclusions. They can be minerals, they can be so-called high-density fluids, and we can chemically study those minerals. And then again, they can tell us something about the conditions of diamond formation, the timing of diamond formation, 
or also the fluids that formed these diamonds particularly? So diamonds are formed very deep in the earth, as are the rocks that bring them up to the surface. So by looking at those, you can get hints as to what the mantle looks like chemically and, and physically. Yes. Excellent. So before we talk about diavik and kimberlites, let's talk about diamonds. When are diamonds formed throughout Earth's history? Basically, diamonds form all throughout Earth history. And some of the earliest diamonds that we've so far dated are about 3.5 billion years old, which is 3,500 million years, which is quite old. But diamonds might form still today. We just have no way of finding them or testing them at this point in time. But if there's more kimberlites that it would erupt, then we also would have more diamonds to look at. You need kimberlites to erupt in order to bring diamonds to the surface. So until we have another set of kimberlite eruptions, we're not going to be able to see any more recently formed diamonds. Yeah, well, there's other types of diamonds that potentially can form. So there's micro diamonds that also form during mountain building events. So you can see them, for example, in the a mountain region called Erzgebirge in Germany, there's micro diamonds that have been brought to the surface by erosion in mountain building times. And there's also diamonds that form during meteorite impacts, so-called impact diamonds. Those diamonds are obviously unrelated to the mantle diamonds, but for mantle diamonds, to be, for us to be able to study diamonds formed in Earth's mantle, we need some kind of elevator, a volcanic rock that brings them to the surface most often that is a kimberlite. Kimberlites are the big interest here in Canada because up north we have the Lac de Grasse kimberlite field. So let's talk about kimberlites. You mentioned that you've visited the Diavik mine, which is one of the most productive diamond mines in the world, mining uh, a few kimberlite pipes. Can you comment on the role of geologists at the mine site? Sure. Um, actually, we uh, were given a tour. So I only was there for a day for like a tour of the mine site, but we were given a tour by one of the lead geologists at the mine. And essentially they're used for, or their, their job is to interpret and analyze any geological results that they find during the mining process. They also need to look into the geotechnical um, aspect of mining so they can help with where it is easier to mine and to find samples. Plus, um, particularly at Diavik right now, they went from an open pit mining to underground mining. So they have to, uh, the geologists have to tell the people or tell the, the, the crew where it would be best to go next to extract the diamonds, which part of the kimberlite they think is most profitable or most mineable. They have to help determine where the edge of the kimberlite is. They generally support the environmental team that helps to minimize the environmental impact of diamond mining in the area. They create geology maps. They still do research in some aspects. I guess, yeah, they also have to evaluate or try to reduce the contamination that can occur during mining. So obviously we want to mine only the or mostly the profitable rocks. So those are some of the jobs that mining, that geolo a geologist that the diving mine might have. I spoke with a, a geologist and businesswoman based in Sudbury uh, in Ontario, which is hard mm -hmm. rock mining. And our conclusion was geologists basically have the laser vision for the subsurface. And with that can tell mining crews where to mine and therefore help them mine more efficiently and, and so on. So pretty important role overall. Yes, and I think also for Divik because it is the mine is set in a lake, 
that uh, the, that there's a lot of environmental issues that could potentially rise that the geologists also are a very important part to help minimize. Mm-hmm. I could see how the the mining operation could be quite intense because you are dealing with the mine within the lake. So really not much room for error or to dig where you shouldn't be digging. Yes. And they can help also compile kind of a, because during mining, we learn so much more information about the Kimberlite structure and geology, like expression of the Kimberlite within the deep crater. So they can help us understand better the generally how Kimberlites are formed. Let's take a step back and look at your research. How does your research, what does your research tell us about kimberlites that may or may not help in the mining process? I think my research in general is more focused on understanding the formation mechanisms behind diamond formation. So what they could help us find is if we know how to better identify maybe unrecognized cratons, then that would also help us find more kimberlites and then therefore potentially more diamond deposits. I think one of the projects I worked on during my PhD at the University of Alberta was a craton called the Sass craton, which is also located in Canada. So the Sass craton is about the same size as the slave craton where the Divic diamond mine is hosted, but it's almost completely buried beneath a, a mountain, a former mountain belt, the Trans-Hudson origin. Also, it seems that this craton is not as old as we typically think of cratons being. So this one is formed in a time called the Paleoproterozoic, whereas most, uh, most cratons are formed during the Archean, which is later or earlier in Earth history. I guess from that perspective, if we assume that cratons that don't fit the typical craton definition also are very good hosts of potential diamond mines and diamond deposits, then that could expand people's horizon or that could expand the research efforts to find new mines. Yeah, and hopefully lead to more discoveries. Yes. I also think not necessarily the research I do, but the research that people like me do could help identify or better characterize minerals that are associated with diamonds and therefore also associated with kimberlites. So when people go exploring for kimberlites, they usually use geophysical methods to find those, but they also use, yes, I just want to say indicator minerals. And if we, we already have a pretty good grasp of a lot of those minerals and what their chemistry should be to like the best type of chemistry that indicates a potential diamond incorporation or a potential diamond um, bearing kimberlite. But it would be good to even further characterize that. So like those are the things I think that my research helps, but my research does not necessarily help with kimberlites. I don't know. It's not, it's not direct, but if you're researching cratons and we need more cratons to find more kimberlites, then I guess I can also one of the well, one of the things I'm looking at or I'm studying right now during my postdoctoral research work are these high-density fluid inclusions that are micro-inclusions within fibrous diamonds. And they are thought to be the, the fluids that formed, that crystallized these diamonds. But there's also a suggested link between those fluids and kimberlite formation. 
understanding these fluids will eventually also help us understand kimolites and kimolite formation. So these fluids link the diamonds and the kimolites together from a from an origin perspective. So you're doing the research, which will which ultimately ties into exploration. Yes, and just understanding where the diamonds come from, where the kim how the kimolites form will help us identify other settings on Earth that potentially could host so far unknown kimberlites. Since kimberlites can exist in in cratons, and we have multiple cratons in the world, many cratons in the world and multiple in Canada, besides Diafic, besides Diavik, where are other diamond deposits in Canada and what do they look like? So there's actually quite a few diamond deposits within kimberlites are not within Canada. A lot of them are being mined. I think Canada has like six, seven mines. A lot of the mines are hosted uh, within the Northwest Territories, and they're all similar type deposits to Diavik. So like something like Acadie, which is essentially, you can actually see the Acadie mine from Diavik, like across the Arctic Plains. Um, there's also like, uh, like Gachaque, there used to be Snap Lake in Jericho. There's some Kimberlite, uh, mining that's going on in Quebec and also in Ontario. Yeah. There's the Renard Kimberlite. And then there's also, there used to be the Victor mine in Ontario on the Superior Creton. And then there are some deposits, for example, the one that I worked on for my PhD on the SAS Creton, which is the mining operation is called the Star Orion mine, but it's um, part of the Fort Alacorn kimberlite field. So oftentimes kimberlites occur as kind of a cluster. So there's like more than one kimberlite that form the field. So like for Divic, it's the Lac de Gras kimberlite field. So for Saskatchewan, it's the Fort Alacorn kimberlite field. And those kimberlites are look a bit different to the ones that are found at Divic. So the Divic ones are generally what we thought of as kimberlites is that they have a kind of a carrot shape. They have a thinner part deeper in the earth. And then on the surface, they get towards the surface, they get wider and they're round, which is not exactly what the ones in in Saskatchewan look like. They are more, I would describe them as kind of more of like a mushroom shape. So they have smaller feeder dikes or feeder volcanic eruptions that feed the kimberlite. And then they have quite broad surface expression. And they're also really well preserved. So they, because the kimberlites erupt quite, or can erupt quite violently, there is something called pyroclastics involved hmm. that are like airborne, former airborne particles or, but the four electron kimberlites have those preserved quite well. So like the crater wall and things like that. One of the other things for the mines in Saskatchewan is that they also were covered by glaciers, but the glacial till is still present. So they're covered by about 100 meters of glacial till or something like that. There's kimberlites in Alberta as well, and they look very similar to the ones in Saskatchewan. So some people call them prairie kimberlites. Would you argue that those are easier to identify than the ones up in the Lac de Grasse field? I think initially they were more difficult to identify because people were looking for something different during exploration. And when they first found them, I think it was initial geophysical work that identified these round bodies. And they just assumed they were something else because they were too large to for what we thought of as, as kimberlite sizes. But I don't know. I don't know if there's a lot of other places where they've found those so far. So they were hard to identify because they, although they were much larger, 
they were strange compared to what we know. They were strange and, and they're, they're completely covered. So they're underneath glacial tills, some sort of like other materials. So then you have to, to drill to actually find. So they do like deep drills to identify the rocks. And then during my PhD, I was allowed to go. They have these big storage facilities where they store all the drill cores. And I was allowed to go and look through the cores and pick ones that contained so-called mantle xenoliths. So little pieces of the earth mantle that are brought to the surface by the kimberlites. Um, and then, yeah, we can look at all of this. We can look at the kimberlite chemistry itself. We can look at the mantle xenoliths. And- that's really interesting. I wasn't aware of the other, the prairie kimberlites, as you called them. So that's very interesting. Yeah, it, it, not everyone calls them like that, but uh, some people, because they're... Mm-hmm. I'm aware of them in Alberta and Saskatchewan, so some people refer to them as prey type. And the kimberlites in Quebec and Ontario, how do they compare to the Lactogas kimberlites in terms of size and economic value? I think they're quite quite similar. I think the one in, in Victor was just recently, the one in Ontario, this called Victor, the Victor mine. I think that one was fairly recently closed, only a few years ago. But I don't actually know what they're what their tonnage is. But I think overall, the the Divic one is one of the most productive ones in Canada. One of the, I guess, from a geological perspective, one of the interesting things about the Victor diamonds is that it's really close to something called the Mid-Continent Rift, which is a part in Canada where the continent split apart at some point and then eventually was uh, amalgamated again. But during that rifting event, it also caused the mantle below the cratons to kind of um, be overprinted. And so by looking at the diamonds in the Victor mine, a lot of them were studied. The inclusions within these diamonds were studied, and we know that they're actually younger than the mid-continent drift. So those diamonds are quite young comparatively. So these are fairly young. Well, not that young, but younger. <laughs> Yeah, so they're all 700 million years old. So if you remember, the oldest ones were 3,600 million years old. So wait, so the kimberlite in Ontario is older than the diavic kimberlite, but the diamonds in the diavic kimberlite are older than the diamonds in the Ontario kimberlite. Some of them, there's varying ages within one diamond mine. So there's there's diamonds in the diamond mine in the divic mine that are only about a thousand million years old, because there's likely episodical diamond formation. So it's again diamond forms as a result of these fluids that are rich in, in carbon percolating through the mantle, and then they crystallize diamonds, and so that can happen more than once during Earth history. And so when the kimberlite then samples it, it just yes, of course. takes anything with it. There's also studies that looked at one at inclusions within one single diamond and dated different types of inclusions within different growth zones of the same diamond. And they're about a, a billion years, so a thousand million years apart in time. So this diamond formed over quite a long period of time. That doesn't have to happen for every diamond, but... Yes, there's a lot of variety in terms of age, formation age. (music) 
in the lab, what type of equipment and analyses do you use to study diamonds specifically for your research? So I'm a geochemist, so I actually lose quite a large variety of instruments. Yes, a, I realize now that's a big question. <laughs> instruments and methods. Um, I think, okay, so to study the diamonds specifically, I initially, or with any mineral or rock, we initially just look at them under a binocular microscope to see what surface features we can identify and to see if we can see any um, mineral inclusions or maybe some of those micro-inclusions that host the fluids. They usually occur as clouds within diamonds or sometimes when they're fibrous diamonds, the entire diamond just kind of looks like grayish. Then we can use an instrument called a Fourier transform infrared spectrometer. So that essentially is a spectroscopic method that uses infrared light that gets transmitted through the diamond. And then we can get a spectrum back that tells us something about the composition of the diamonds. It can help us uh, say something about the temperatures that the diamond formed at, because we can look at nitrogen and what positions the nitrogen has within the crystal lattice of the diamond. One of the other main things is stable isotope work. So we use secondary ion mass spectrometer to look at carbon isotopes and also nitrogen isotopes within diamonds. And they can help us identify the origin or sort of the source of the diamond forming fluids. Usually we, we differentiate between two main ones, whether or not they're formed within the earth mantle or whether or not they formed on the surface and then they were brought to the mantle by subduction. So like when the crust has been brought down during plate tectonics. So that's, I think, the main there's other things people use for, you can use Raman, you can use other methods for, for diamond research, but those are the main ones I use. And then to study the, the mantle rocks and other mantle minerals, I use an electron microprobe to analyze the minerals specifically. And that gives us kind of an overall major element composition. We can use mass spectrometers that can help us identify trace elements. One of the main things I also did is look at rhenium-osmium, the rhenium-osmium isotope system, which can be used to date the rocks that host diamonds. So therefore, we do a lot of work in a clean lab environment where we do chemistry in a lab, and then we use a thermal ion mass spectrometer, uh, thermal ionization, sorry, thermal ionization mass spectrometer. Thank you for sharing some of those analytical methods with us. I realize, yes, geochemistry is a huge field and there are so many analytical methods that you can use to study these things. So apologies, that was a large question. Yanina, thank you so much for joining me today. It was really interesting to learn more about diamonds in Canada and diamonds in general. Um, I think it's an absolutely fascinating field of research and we need researchers like you to improve our exploration efforts and find more diamonds in the future. So thank you for joining us and good luck with your postdoctoral studies. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It's great to meet you. Bye, Yanina. Bye. Yanina uses diamonds and their composition to study the mantle, something physically inaccessible. This research is a step in learning more about diamonds, their formation, and their sources near the surface of the earth, which is key to exploration efforts. I look forward to new kimberlite and diamond discoveries in the coming years. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your family and friends. 
You can find more episodes of Backyard Geology Canada Edition at the Geology Podcast Network, wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Backyard Geology Canada Edition is part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist.